Welcome to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. I believe there's a rhythm and art in everything that we do. This is my journey about how I went from being a hip hop dancing engineer to a multifamily real estate investor. If you wanna learn more about how you can start investing in real estate, stay tuned to learn from multifamily real estate investors and hear how they found their rhythm and created their own sound investments. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Koo. I'm on the journey to go from hip-hop dancing engineer turned multifamily real estate investor. And this is a show where I interview multifamily real estate investors and discuss how they found their rhythm and created their own sound investments. But before I introduce today's guest, I'll remind you that this show is brought to you by Nightly Productions. If you already have a platform, a podcast, a YouTube channel, and you are ready to start creating more content that breaks through the noise, be sure to check out Nightly Productions. Find out how they can help you stop wasting time and money on content that does not deliver. Now, for today's guest, we have Michael Mike Murawski. He's a 30-year, 30-plus-year real estate investment veteran. He has controlled over $285 million in real estate transactions. Mike is an entrepreneur, author, real estate trainer, public speaker, and personal coach with a strong personal resilience and deep desire to help others live an extraordinary life. He has coached hundreds of real estate investors to fulfill their dreams. Please give a warm welcome to Mike. Hey, Taylor. How are you? I'm I'm doing great. How are you doing? Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for... You probably could have left the plus out. Oh, the 30-year plus. (laughs) Did I, I? I didn't mean to age you, <laughs> age you like that. <laughs> All right, I do a good job on my own. So, well, honestly, you <laughs> you're looking great. You're looking great. You know, I didn't. I if I were to guess, I would guess like 45 to be honest. Hey, so, l- listen, I'll take that, man. You're all right. <laughs> and in that case, <laughs> in that case, you'd have been doing real estate since you were 15. That's right. <laughs> But anyways, yeah, no, thank you for coming on to the show. I mean, first off, I mean, aside from just the the little intro that I've given you, I'd love to know just how you got started with real estate and then that transition into apartments. Yeah, sure. And, you know, really, thanks for having me. I'm really uh, honored and I appreciate your platform and what you do and uh, how you bring that message to your audience. And I think it's great. Uh, here's what I here's what I believe. And I've always believed this is success leaves clues. So I got into real estate because I watched other successful people do really well. And I got in the apartment business because I watched other people do really well. I I didn't come from a family that was entrepreneurial. I didn't come from a family that knew anything or did a lot, anything with real estate. And I don't know how I got here, to be honest with you. So (laughs) I was in the construction business and had a general contracting company doing residential uh, remodels, uh, kitchen and bath and room additions. And, you know, I had a great company. I was very, you know, it was really relatively successful and but I woke up one morning and I was just burnt out. I said, I looked at my wife. I said, I can't do this anymore. Still banging nails. And so I took a year off, sold the company, took a year off. And during that time, we house hacked. And now, uh, Taylor, this is long before house hacking uh, was sexy, right? <laughs> she's screaming at me because she's walking on uh, nails on the floor. So, Oh, no. Um, 
but we house hacked a couple of two flats. And along the way, I met a real estate agent and he was really successful at what he did. And I went to him and I said, listen, I think I want to go in real estate. And he said, I think you'd be great. He goes, I think you have a great personality, the ability to maintain some sales skills. I, I think you can go out and build a good business. I said, great. I said, could I come and shadow you and learn from you? He said, "Uh uh-uh, no. (laughs) What I'll do, what I'll do is I'll, and I was kind of stunned. He goes, no, I'll do better than that. I'll make you a cassette tape. Now I'm dating myself. Okay. Because Mm. now I don't think you can find something to make a cassette tape. So I'll cut you a little grace on the plus comment now. um, But yeah, he made me this cassette tape and I listened to it over and over and over again. And here's the thing that he did is he created this platform, kind of like a podcast today, that I could go back and listen to repetitively of the basic fundamentals. See, I think in order for us to be successful, we have to master the the mundane boredom, the basic fundamentals, do those same things over and over again. It's old school stuff, Taylor. And, you know, everybody wants a quick fix or a different answer today, and it's not. So I went in the real estate business. I sold 78 houses in my first nine months in the business. I went on to build a team selling 125 homes a year. You know, when you look at that and you know that the average real estate agent sells nine to 12 houses a year, I did a little bit more than that. And just because I I, I practiced the those fundamentals that he taught me on that cassette tape. 2005, I saw the market starting to shift and I knew that that I would need to go do something different that uh, when the market shifted that I wouldn't keep the same production up. So I uh, decided to go in the apartment business. And here again, success leaves clues. I had studied a company in Chicago today, Inland Real Estate. Four high school teachers went out, they started, they did their first syndication. They bought a four unit apartment building. Today, 40 years later, they are the largest REIT in the world. They're in 80 countries around the world in every asset class. Success leaves clues. So I understood this, I understood the private equity model. You raise private equity from individuals, you marry it with a great real estate deal. As long as everything goes well, everybody makes money. I could stay in the middle, help help everybody to make money as long as everything went well. And things don't always go that way, but over the next 30 months, I decided in 2005 to go into the apartment business. I, I raised $18 million. I bought $60 million worth of real estate. It was 4,000 apartments in five different states. And I built a property management company managing 4,000 units. I'm sorry, 7,500 units um, around the country. So I uh, scaled the business really fast, way too fast, a uh, little bit unstable as a result of that. And today I'm in the coaching and training space as a result of all that. You know, there was um, a lot to unpack here, but first off, before uh, we dive a, a little bit more into just like some of the concepts and fundamentals that you were talking about, and also the comments about scaling way too fast. I'm curious, do you still have that cassette tape with you? No, I don't. I, oh. wish, I wish I did. You know, and and here I'll tell you what I have a couple of boxes in an attic in uh, my ex-wife and kids' house, and you know it could possibly be in there. I'm not sure, but there's a possibility it could be. But well, that'd be kind of classic, wouldn't it? Yeah, that would be pretty. That would be pretty cool. I would love to just uh, listen back and just hear, even if it, you know, I, I can imagine some of the fundamentals within that cassette tape just still applies to today. Well, that's what I said. It's old school fundamentals, right? So listen, I'm a big prospector. 
So you want to get something done, pick up the phone and call people, right? You can do all the social media in the world. You can do all of the emailing in the world. But listen, it comes down to relationship. All of this comes down to relationship. And the principles on that cassette tape are priceless because here's what they were. Go help somebody else, do something for somebody else, help somebody else achieve their goal, and you'll achieve your goal. So, you know, Zig Ziglar said a long time ago, I don't know if uh, Zig Ziglar, motivational speaker, Mm -hmm. great, great guy, followed him for years, said, if you help enough other people get what they want, you'll ultimately get what you want. Always live by that, right? Mm -hmm. So this guy's philosophy, Todd's philosophy on this cassette tape was go to for sale by owners and help them sell their house. You don't need to list it, just help them sell their house. Well, why would you want to do that? Because if I help enough other people get what they want, I will ultimately get what I want. I can't tell you how many people sold their home that I helped as a for sale by owner before I sold 78 78 of those houses myself. So I only worked the for sale by owner market for that first nine months and, you know, just help people sell their house. Hmm. And, you know, I'm curious then, so like with 2005, you know, you started to see the market shift, you know, just just a little bit. And then you decided to scale up. Now, I'm curious, like with the with the or not scale or at least go into apartment buildings. Right. And so I'm curious then just like the thought process there. Because I mean, typically I wouldn't, I mean, yeah, I guess you could see like some of the, you know, more, more of this residential guys stay within that market, but you know, yeah, I guess sometimes they would maybe even try and go up into apartment buildings. And so I was just wondering what that, that thought process and what that experience was like uh, when you started to see the market shift and why did you decide to make that jump? Yeah. So I saw the market softening and I had some in instinct that said, you know, things are going to change. And I don't know if it was because of the height of the market. I don't know if it was because of the way they were doing loans and giving money to people, but I saw something was going to change. And I knew something would have to change in business in order to keep up with that change. And listen, I had no idea 2008 was going to happen, but I had this, you know, I almost want to say it was like a uh, premonition, <laughs> right? Of something that was going to happen. Right. Um, so I just said, hey, listen, I think it's a good time to go in this other direction. I've always wanted to go in the apartment business. Can't think of a better time. And listen, I had a really successful uh, real estate team. I mean, we sold a h- over 125 houses a year. Did that for eight years. That you know, Do the math on an average $325,000 transaction. So, you know, it's... We did okay. So, yeah. So, I don't know. I just saw something coming. And here's what I want to say. I see a lot of shades of that today. Hmm. Okay. So, the way the market is today, I just say walk cautiously. People are doing a bunch of deals today and underwriting things that I think they're, they're, they're you know, razor thin to begin with and just trying to push the envelope a little too much. Watch your rent growth. Watch your exit caps when you're underwriting today because... I see shades of this coming. See, I built a business really fast, scaled it. I thought, man, this is great, right? I've hit a home run here, but it was very unstable. And it was like balancing on a chair on two legs with my feet off the ground. So 
Yeah, and, and I was wondering if you could dive into that a little bit more because um, that was a, a comment that kind of stuck out to me is that you scaled way too fast. And I know that, uh, yeah. you know, people are always saying like, oh, 10X, like scale up big and and just shoot for the moon or, and you know, swing for the fences. And so, you know, I mean, 4,000 apartment units and, and building a PM company, that's definitely, that's a, that's a pretty awesome resume right there but i'd love to just know as to like why and where that came from and why you thought you scaled way too fast and what that experience was like yeah so in 2007 i bought 17 deals for somewhere i I don't remember the exact number it was somewhere between 2200 and 2700 units and it was in probably three different markets four different markets you know we were in in texas alabama Ohio, Indiana, one asset in Illinois. Couldn't make any money during that period of time in Illinois, which is different today, but couldn't make any money in in that period of time in Illinois. So we went to other markets and that's what, that's what I did. So I built this whole thing from the coach seat of an airplane, basically. Wow. But I look at it, you know, what happened was I, I, I would write a great business plan with my CFO and we would take on this asset and I'd turn it over to the operations side of the business, thinking that they were running everything right. And they were doing the business plan and getting the CapEx done and retenanting the property and doing the the things that needed to be done in order to re-engineer it. And none of it was happening. And I would ask, you know, how's things going? Oh, fine. We got it under control. Great. I'm the kind of guy I didn't need to know a lot of detail, right? I'm a yes, no guy. So (laughs) when we get in a conversation... If you say yes or no, I'm good with that, right? I don't need a lot of detail. Most of the time, there are a lot of times I do want some detail. And today I'm different, right? Today I want more detail because I think that the devil's in the details, right? Today, because I didn't pay attention to those details. I didn't pay attention to the KPIs and the key metrics that, that you go, man, you know, how come this isn't running right? Or how come we don't have new tenants? Or how come there's so many vacancies? You know, what are you watching out for? So you have to, you know, you can put expectations on things and on people, but if you don't measure those expectations, how do you know that they're ever being, you know, taken care of? So, you know, hopefully that makes sense. Yeah. And so, you know, when you were starting to see, and it was like some of these, some of them like didn't start to make sense, right? Like what, and and you would just ask questions. You're more of a yes, yes, no guy. Like what, what ended up happening from there? Like, cause I mean, it sounds like all these different like red flags with you, was yeah. your CFO just started coming up. And so then like, how did you approach it then? Like, how did you address it with your partner? Yeah. So wasn't with my CFO. Okay. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, with yeah. the operations side of the business, it was actually my partner, my ex-partner was the CEO of the company. So okay. here's, so Here's what happened, right? And and you want to talk about key metrics in a business. I didn't pay attention to details. So I didn't see it coming, right? Remember in 2005, I said, hey, the market's going to change. I never saw 2008 coming. Matter of fact, I was at lunch with my CFO one day and the news is on and they're carrying boxes out of Lehman Brothers by the dozen. And I looked at him across the table and I said, we're screwed, aren't we? He goes, yeah, we're in big trouble. So, you know, the world changed in in 48 hours. You had Lehman Brothers go out of business. You had all this bad paper on Wall Street. You had the CNBC markets just crumble. Bear Stern, who is 100 years old, 
just crumble. AIG lost a whole division, right? Mm -hmm. So all of these things happen in the marketplace because of bad paper, because of, you know, and, and listen, I love to follow some economists and I believe in some theories and I have some theories about what happened. I mean, way too deep for us to go on this podcast, but, mm -hmm. you know, maybe another time it's worth the conversation. But here's what happened. I was over leveraged. I bought property. I was 85% uh, 80, loan to value instead of 70 or 75% or loan to value on my deals. <laughs> I, I so I bought $60 million worth of real estate at 15% down. Crazy. Banks should have never let me do it. But they were throwing money at people. They thought the market was going to continue to do this. We were on this, we were on this straight line like this for years, just going straight up, right? And there was none of this that you have today. And so that was part of part of the issue. So I was over leveraged. I paid too much for most of the properties because we're going up. Okay. There was no break in that anywhere. So I paid too much. I didn't pay attention to the red flag. Operations weren't running properly. I didn't look at the metrics. I trusted too many other people. Scaled the company way too fast. I had 138 people working for me during that period of time. Maintenance people, on-site staff, property management, corporate office people, um, people raising money, people, attorneys, you know, I, I mean, it was crazy. And listen, I, I hung, some of my peers were like, man, Morowski, you hit the big time. And I was like, you know, my ego, my pride kind of started mm. to rear its ugly head, right? And, and I think that these are classic things that happen to an entrepreneur building a business. And I built a couple of other successful businesses, sold mm -hmm. them, one I lost because of, of some issues that happened with that company. But, you know, I've had ups and downs along the, along the years. And so 2008 comes, watching Lehman Brothers fire everybody and walk everybody out of the building. It was like a freight train hitting a brick wall at 200 miles an hour. Oof. We started to derail in 2009, still getting some deals done, still, you know, working some, you know, re-engineering some things. 2010, I completely came off the rails. Here's what happened along the way. We were heavily vested in markets that transportation and the auto industry were heavily in. And as a result of that, a lot of those businesses went out of business. So people got laid off, people lost their jobs. The counter effect to that was they moved out of places that they live. You know, I had an apartment complex in Anderson, Indiana. I get a phone call from the property manager on a Monday morning in tears. She says, I have 32 moving trucks in the parking lot today. I don't have a scheduled move out for 45 days. What do you want me to do? I said, lock the gate. Don't let anybody out. <laughs> I mean, what do you do? You, can't, you know, Jeez. so the NOI dropped, and we all know multifamily is driven by NOI, your mm. value, everything else. So I had $60 million worth of real estate that got valued at $47 million within, you know, two weeks of the markets crashing. So, you know, here's what happened. I had some companies that started to get really bad. I had 38 different companies. Some were operating really poorly. And I should have just let them go to foreclosure. I should have let a few investors get hurt. But the kind of guy I am is I don't want anybody to get hurt. And I don't want to have to come to you, Taylor, with bad news. 
So I'm the hero. I want to fix everything and make everything right. Now I'm different today. I'm not like that anymore. But what I did was I started to move money back and forth between companies. So I would take money from profitable companies, move it to non-profitable companies. My attorney, outside legal counsel, and my accountant both said, it's okay to do that. Leave a paper trail. And when the markets change, put the money back. Now here's what happened. My belief, I've been involved in a couple of recessions already over the years. My belief was, hey, listen, 10% correction in the marketplace, 17, 18 months, this will all bounce back, we'll be in good shape. This thing was 40% correction, 47% correction in the marketplace. It lasted seven or eight years, and there's people today still affected as a result of it. So ultimately what happened, I moved money back and forth. I didn't tell my investor because I thought, you know what, I'll fix this. I'll make sure everything's okay. I ultimately got charged with wire fraud and mail fraud charge, uh, charges and sentenced to 10 years in federal prison for non-disclosure. Whew. So I went to prison. We lost everything and I went to federal prison. You want to unpack any of that before I go on? Well, and sorry, I'm just like a little speechless because I mean, I would say this, this would definitely be a first on my podcast. <laughs> uh, talking about just like this experience, but I mean, that's, that's interesting geez. because I'm not the first and people, people don't want to talk about this stuff. They only want to talk about successes, right. And right. How great they're doing, but you know, I think people need to know reality. My, my, the reason I tell the story is because I want to bring hope and inspiration to people that it's not failure. Failure is only if you don't get back up, right? You could stub your toe, but what are you going to do? Are you going to, you know, just let it keep you down? Or are you going to get back up? So I tell the story because I want, I want other people to realize that they don't have to make the same mistakes I've made and they can, they can do really well in the world and in the marketplace. You know, I mean, something that I, that's what, what sucks about just that experience. I mean, aside from the, the whole being in federal prison part was that it just sounded like your intentions were actually really good too. Like you just didn't want the other investors to worry. It's not like you were taking, you know, a bunch of money and and you, in a way, like you were sort of acting as like this martyr and uh, trying to take in all of these different hits, like for your investors, but not maybe, I mean, well, not in, I guess, in the, in the best way. And so, you know, I'm curious then as to just like, even the thought process and in, in when you were in federal prison for those 10 years, if you don't mind diving in, just like, what were some of the thoughts like going on in your head? Cause I, I mean, like based on how you were talking, yeah, I, I understand why fraud and mail fraud is definitely not great. So listen, so I don't have any problem. I'm very transparent about yeah. any of this, right? So online, offline makes no difference. Yeah. Um, boy, I got to say something, man, you just, you just tapped something when you said it, it sounded like you just didn't want your investors to worry. Okay. And, and it's interesting that you say that because every time I do one of these podcasts, I learn a little bit more about everything that happened. And, you know, it's like you process, you keep processing all this mm -hmm. stuff, right? Right. That, that pain, that grief, that stuff that goes bad in your life. And we, we continually process it. So here's, what's really interesting about what you just said. So in my marriage, and this is my second marriage, mm -hmm. in my marriage, I never told my wife about business, okay? And I never told her because I didn't want her to worry. So I would tell her, you know, hey, we just closed another apartment deal, or we raised more money, or, but, but I knew how much she worried about stuff. And I knew as long as I just, 
you know, kept bringing a paycheck home and just told her the highlights that she wouldn't worry. But that's my makeup, right? I don't want people to worry. I don't want to come to you with bad news. I don't want to have to feel like I let you down, right? So here's why I tell this story. Because this started, this whole demise started way back in 2008. And I'm sitting at a closing in Cincinnati, getting ready to close a deal. And I'm waiting for my office to wire $500,000 to the closing. And it's not coming and it's not coming. And I finally get my partner on the phone and I, and he says, look, I don't know how to tell you this. So I'm sitting in a closing, trying to close a 280 unit apartment complex. My partner gets on the phone, tells me he doesn't know how to tell me how he can't wire the money. What do you think? Right. Right. So what ultimately happened, he said, look, man, I had to move money from the escrow account into the business account to cover some costs. He said, I thought I'd have the money back by closing. I overshot it. So I said, look, man, I said, we had this conversation before we ever went into business. You don't do that. He goes, I know, man. He goes, I just thought it'd be okay. So here my trust is being breached, right? With this guy, Mm -hmm. but I'm a hero. So what do I do? I go back to, I say, we're going to dry close the deal. I sign all the docs, said, I'll have it funded by Tuesday. I go back to the office over the weekend. This is Wednesday. Over the weekend, I raise the rest of the money, get the deal closed by Tuesday. Life is good. We take the deal on, happen to be one of the best deals. I had to give away some equity in order to do that. But here's the key to the story. That was Wednesday. On Friday night, I go to dinner with my wife and my partner and his wife. Remember, I don't tell my wife about business. She doesn't know what happened on Wednesday. I don't tell her bad news because she'd worry, right? Mm -hmm. What does she say to me on the way home from dinner? I don't trust him. Whoa. Now, where did that come from, right? And did I pay attention? So as a good husband, what do I say? I say, honey, don't worry. I have this. I got it under control. No sweat. And I didn't have it under control. Hmm. So what I should have said as a good husband, tell me more about that. What do you see that I don't see? Now, that's that's a great story, right? But here, hmm. fast forward to Wednesday the next week. I'm out to lunch with my attorney. My attorney says, what are you doing in business with this guy? You don't need him, first of all. You're smarter than he is. And I don't know what he's up to, but it's not good. And I say, makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. <laughs> yeah, I just got it shivered down my spine. <laughs> yeah. so, so I say, Bob, I got this. Don't worry. And, and Taylor, I didn't have it at all. Hmm. So, you know, ultimately... I, I, I didn't pay attention. I buried my head in the sand. I thought I'd go close another deal, bring more revenue in, have more apartments, and it increased the profitability. It increases the management fees. It, you know, it, it's a big increase when you bring another 200 units on, right? So when I think back and I look at it today, I'm like, God, how could I have missed some of that stuff along the way? So here's what happens, right? I go to prison. 2013, I get sentenced to 10 years in federal prison. I'm standing in the I'm standing in, in the courtroom and here's what I remember. This is sentencing and and what I remember is this. <gasps> right after the judge said I'm sentencing you to 120 months and it was like everybody in the courtroom got that sucked the air out of the room and it stopped. You I I couldn't hear anything. It was so surreal. And my wife and two of my daughters were standing there and just gasped. That's a sound or a feeling I'll never forget. So I, hey, look, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I go to prison thinking my life is over. I've lost everything. Now, remember this. 
I go from living this middle-class lifestyle. My life never changed. I didn't fly private. I didn't buy big boats. I didn't buy big houses. I didn't drive big, fancy cars. I lived a modest lifestyle, plowed all my money back into the company. And now all of a sudden I lose all that and go to prison, think my life's over. I go from, from being the neighborhood baseball coach, soccer coach, being home most nights for dinner, having a great marriage to now I'm living in a 12 by 12 room with four men I don't know and living in a two by five locker. I've got three green outfits, five pairs of underpants, wondering what the hell happened in my life and you know what's tomorrow going to bring. Thought my life was over, thought this was the worst it could be. 17 days in, my wife decides she's going to divorce me and move on. Now my life was really over, it wrecked me. So, you know, you wake up every morning and you go, man, what are you going to do, right? How are you going to mitigate your way through this? And some guys close to me, you know, they joke about it today, but they they wanted to take my shoelaces because they thought that I was danger to myself. So <laughs> I said, you know, I would never let them. But yeah. so I walk into gym one day, I'm probably in about six weeks. And I walk into gym one day and I'm 35 pounds overweight. And, um, you know, you said earlier, you said, boy, I had to get you for 45. I said, prison preserves you, man. So here's what happens. <laughs> right? um, this guy walks up to me and he goes, Hey, I know you're having a hard time, but don't let these people beat you. All they want to do is take everything from you and strip you naked. Don't let them do it. He goes, get that 10 years back. He said, they can take your houses, they can take your apartments, they can take your property management company, they can take your cars, they can disrupt your family, but they can't take you. They can't take what you're made of, who you are, who you are at the core, and what you know, and what you can do. He goes, get that 10 years back, come in here, start working out every day, feel better about yourself, educate yourself, prepare to go home, go home and knock it out of the park best advice I ever got from anybody ever in my whole life, I believe, because that guy, I think saved my life. Matter of fact, I sent him an email over the last few weeks here. And I said, Hey, Kirk, I just want you to know. And he sent me back an email and he said, Hey man, I needed that today. Cause it just, cause I thanked him for what he said to me. And, you know, and it's funny, we show up in people's lives when, when they least expect it, we least expect it, but we bring some message of hope or inspiration. Right. So I started working out. I started losing weight, started feeling better about myself, came home in better shape physically uh, than I've ever been. I went to college. I got a bachelor's degree in theology. I wrote two books while I was gone, one called Exit Plan, which I'd love to give your listeners at the end of the show, but it's your complete guide to multifamily investing and why you need an exit plan before you buy. Property management book. I, I taught real estate investing and property management for five years in prison. I taught Bible study. I also wrote an ethics course and taught ethics in prison. How ironic, right? A federal inmate teaching <laughs> ethics. So I was on an outreach program. I went in the community, told my story like 40 times to small businesses and local corporations, uh, local colleges. I befriended a professor from the University of Minnesota and wound up co-authoring a paper with him that we had published in the Business Journal of Ethics just in January this year. So I did a lot. You know, there's a saying in prison that says you can either do the time or you can let the time do you. And I chose to do the time. Hmm. I wasn't going to let the time do me. Like I said, I came home better shape spiritually, physically, mentally, and emotionally than I'd ever been. So it's a path of redemption today. 
Yeah, I I love that story, and I mean it. And it's extremely inspiring just to see like you bounce back, and also in and I I want to emphasize this too, just because, and I and I don't want uh, you know my audience to take this lightly, but the amount of mental fortitude and just like accountability and like facing yourself and the inward reflection that you have, and then also it's in just like your core intentions, like really. St- stands out like after all those experiences uh, and to be able to still put yourself out there, still go back into real estate is extremely impressive. And so, you know, I would, I would love to just dive into it just like a little bit more about like now with what you're focusing on and, you know, when you tell your story, how people have been receptive to it and, and, and uh, around you, just because, I feel like when when people hear like oh federal prison he was in federal prison they don't they might not want to talk to you might get a little scared <laughs> uh, and so you know I was just wondering like just what has the experience been like since you've been out then yeah so great question thanks for asking you know the first few months I was home I didn't tell my story mm-hmm. I and I felt like I was always looking over my shoulder and here's what happened right a couple of guys that I was on their podcast or going to be on their podcast came to me and said, Hey, what, what is this? Or would ask me like, I, I remember one guy in particular from upstate New York uh, said, Hey, who's this guy? And he said, my ex-partner's name. And I said, uh, well, that's my ex-partner. And he goes, good answer. He goes, cause if you would have told me you didn't know him, I'd have hung up on you. So mm. I, I thought that was really interesting. Right. And so, so here's what happened in, I want to say, uh, I did an event uh, the first year I was home in October and I had a three-day summit that I put on. I'd only been home maybe five months. So I hit the ground running, right? Zach Knight actually helped me put that event on with some other people. He was part of our team. And uh, I'll never, I'll never forget Zach for any of this, but I really appreciate his friendship and, and his support. Him and Heather are just great. So what Zach, he came to Chicago one day and we had breakfast and I was sitting with Zach, Heather and Jesse. And I, um, I tell my story and Zach's like, man, you need to tell this story. You need to get it out. And that was like my first I knew I needed to do it, but I wasn't sure how I was going to do it. And that was the first piece. Mm. Well, I got that paper published a couple months later, a few weeks later in the Business Journal of Ethics. And my marketing guy put it on the website. And I thought, wow, isn't that ironic? Now, he just kind of went and did it, put a link to it. And I thought, man, I better start telling my story because if people stumble across this, this is almost as bad as Google, right? So I started telling my story. And it was like, it was like I, I, I relieved myself of that pressure of having to have to worry somebody was looking over my shoulder or watching me. But, and today, like I said, Taylor, I tell my story because I want to bring hope and inspiration. But more importantly, I want people to understand how easy it is to make mistakes. You know what? I see shades today of 2005, six, seven. I see shades today of things that, of the, the past. You know, history repeats itself. You know, people are wearing bell bottoms again. History repeats itself. <laughs> the fact that you brought a bell, I was not <laughs> expecting the, the bell bottoms comment. 
Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. people are wearing mullets. People are having mullets. That's now. right. My buddies are having mullets. Oh my God, stop it. <laughs> it's coming back. <laughs> um, no, that's 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 so fascinating. Well, and, you know, since you've been out pretty recently, too, and then COVID happens and then everything shut down again, I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's unfortunate. But, you know, real quick. Here's what's really funny, right, is I believe that so many people walk around in prison internally themselves anyhow Mm -hmm. that you know people are stuck and they're stuck from their own fear they're you know it could be abuse physical mental emotional right it could be fear of failure it could be fear of going outside we we're stuck people are stuck in prisons and you know there's got to be some inspiration to help people Mm -hmm. move forward Right. And I hope that my story does, because you know what? I could have come home and just flip burgers at McDonald's. Right. But I don't want to do that. I mean, I want to I want to help people. I want to give back. And that's my my coaching and training business today. Right. My core intentions. My intention is to to give back, to help other people be successful. Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I would love to dive into just like some of those coaching strategies to the action items episode. And, you know, if, if it's okay with you, just have a little coaching session for like people that are new that are wanting to get into the game and even do do, get into a little bit more of the, the weeds of just like even being transparent with your investors, if you're raising a bunch of money and and making sure you're um, everything is, is aligned correctly. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, Real quick though, cause I, I, we are running a little, a little short on time, but I'm curious as to like, so, so you noticed that, um, you noticed that you're, you're starting to see some of the signs that you saw back in 2005, 2006, 2007, right? Now with the current market now, I mean, cap rates are compressed. A lot of people are starting to overpay and deals are slim. I've heard uh, in another podcast, actually my podcast from some other guests saying that the the properties that are going to be more hit are going to be like more of those C class D class assets and so those B plus A class properties are going to should be a little bit better off if that's and are able to withstand let's say um, a correction. Now, would you agree with that statement, or should everybody just be extremely cautious and kind of hold off until things start to cool down? Yeah, no, I never advise anybody to hold back, just underwrite conservatively. You know, I've been in this space a long time, made money when the market's high, I've made money when the market's low. You just need to know where to buy. You know, we always make money when we go into the real estate deal. So you want to just be watch that, but you never realize it till you exit. And that's the premise of my book too, is that whole exit planning. But, but here's what I know. If you're underwriting today is conservative, you're going to be fine. Don't cut your deal razor thin. Make sure that here I'm in Chicago and when I'm underwriting a deal here, the national rent growth right now is about 3.7% across the board nationally. In Chicago and the co- seven collar counties, it's 1.7%. Hmm. So if I underwrite a deal at the national average, am I helping myself or hurting myself? I should probably write that deal at 1.75. And I right. do that, you know, forward moving years, right? Listen, just because cap rates will probably go to 3%, does that mean that we should underwrite the deal at 3%? (laughs) 
<laughs> maybe just try underwriting the deal at what the going in cap is, or even, you know, a little higher, 15, 20 basis points a year to exit higher than where it's at now. Just be conservative. Watch your rent growth, watch your exit cap rates, watch your expenses. You know, taxes, I think, are going to, are you know, are going to really rear their ugly head across the country here coming up. So, so how do we watch for these things? How do we, you know, be conservative? I think, I think it starts with early onset traps or evaluation, you know, the things you look at population growth, job growth, know where the population's going, know where jobs are going. What's the household income and what's the demographics? Can you change a property? Can you change a property dynamics? Hey, listen, I don't have a problem with a C deal if the metrics are right. So what do I mean by that? I like, here's the space I like right now, three to 20 unit deals right in that pocket in high rent growth markets. I'm doing a deal right now in Tampa. It's going to be about 22 units. We we're buying it to C deal and we're probably buying it at about a six cap. Okay maybe a little less, five and three quarters, I think maybe. And the goal is we're going to go in, I'm going to put about 150,000 in CapEx into it. So I'm going to really, really change it. And then we're going to re-tenant it. I know I can move the needle on the demographics and put a new tenant base in it because of the upgrades, the improvements, interior and exterior. And I can be out of it and flip out of it to a specific group of buyers in 22 to 30 months. So, you know, what's your strategy? What are you trying to do? So I know that there's a lot of opportunity in the country today in that product. So I don't mind a C-class deal today because Hmm. I know I can drive it. I can drive it from a C to maybe a B minus. You're not going to go much higher than that because you just can't, can't change visual you know, you still, you know, a 1960s or a 1970 product, when you walk in, it's still a 1960s or a 1970 product. Coat of paint doesn't just fix that, right? Got it. And yeah, and, and also to, to clarify uh, my comment too about like where these C class and D class might be in tr- trouble more so than like the B class and A class. Uh, the person that was on my show, uh, he was saying that it was just like those those capital uh, expenditures that they had to deal with, like maybe those HVAC units have been, they've been just getting turned over and, you know, renovated. But like now I think he was saying that, I think it was in the sixties where there's like the last time that, you know, maybe they were renovated or at least like that's when the unit was placed. And then, so then moving forward, then like now they're starting to reach that life cycle. And so your CapEx expenses might be a little bit higher and could take a hit on, on your deal. But at least, you know, from what I'm hearing, as long as you're conservative and you account for that and don't over leverage yourself, then it still could be good. Right. Right. Got it. Well, you know, moving forward with that, I'd love to just dive into the details a little bit more on the next episode because I feel like we can go on and on and on. Uh, but, you know, I want people to come back and hear more about the action items and how and, and even dive more into the uh, to the exit plan in even looking at some of the assumptions walking into a deal. So we're going to hold off on this one. We're going to chew on everything that just happened in this in this first episode because there's a lot that just happened. Um, so I just want to say thank you, Mike. I appreciate you for coming on to the show. And if people want to reach out to you, how can they find you? Oh, 
they can find me on social media, Instagram, LinkedIn, <laughs> okay. Facebook. I'm very loud out there and please subscribe uh, to, you know, follow me, like me, love me, all that stuff. They can direct message me at Mike at mycoreintentions.com. Love to network. I love to answer questions, talk to people. So anybody can reach out. And if you would, you want me to give away my book? I You can give away your yeah. book if you'd okay. like. Yeah, go download a copy of my book. It's at mycoreintentions.com forward slash exit plan. It's an ebook and it's a real book. I had somebody say the other day, man, this is 260 pages. I thought it was an ebook. I said, it is an ebook. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, awesome. Yeah, no, make sure to to check it. Are you going to publish? I mean, print. uh, I have printed versions. Yeah, you can buy a copy on my website or on Amazon too. So yeah. Okay. So. Awesome. Well, definitely check it out. I mean, it's an actual ebook. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's an actual ebook and then uh, stay tuned for this Friday as we uh, dive into the action episodes. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the multifamily artist podcast. If you got any value out of this episode, I'd greatly appreciate if you head over to iTunes, leave a rating and review the show, which will help more people receive that same value. If you're looking to connect and talk more about multifamily real estate, you can reach me at inrhythmmultifamily.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.